welcome to episode 142 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 13th of September, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Fainan. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. Welcome back, Will. You were sadly missed, but we just about carried on without you. Well, well done. Let's get straight on with the news then. And the first is reasonably good news for Firefox users on Windows then. And that is that Mozilla has found a way to circumvent the bullshit way that Microsoft forces you to jump through hoops to change the default browser on Windows 10. So Microsoft's done this for Edge to make it its default browser. And the Firefox team have reversed engineered this to be able to do it for Firefox. But I really like that they've taken the initiative and they've done it. That's what's exciting about it. I think, you know, it's a big thumbs up from me for this is the right thing to do. It's a pity they have to do it. And also... Reading this story linked to lots of stories that I hadn't really fully appreciated in Windows 11, which is all the steps you have to go through to do a similar thing in Windows 11 because Microsoft has actually not made it per single application, it's per single service. So if you want to do the same thing for a web browser, you actually have to choose 11 options and make them all default to Firefox. But that's a whole new story. Yeah, This is Mozilla doing the best that they can and actually really delivering here. So you've got to say hats off to them. How long it'll last before Microsoft fucks them over again is anyone's guess. But this is definitely what they need to be doing because if you can't set it as your default browser, people are not going to use it. And it's funny that this comes shortly after I was reading on Slashdot, Ask Slashdot, why is Firefox losing users? I think it linked out to an It's Foss article or something. But there was a debate going on about why Firefox is losing users. And this has got to be one of them. Of course, that's only one small reason. The fact that Google pushes its browser wherever it possibly can. And I've told this story before about a friend of mine, sadly no longer with us. But I went around to his place and he was using Chrome. And I asked him, what happened? why have you got Chrome? Oh, it was an update. And that's because he'd gone to Google in Firefox and it had said, hey, download Chrome. And Microsoft do equally dirty tricks in Windows to suggest to you that Edge is the right browser or rather the browser you're using is not as good as it could be. And it's it's really aggressive and quite underhanded. So yeah, they deserve to have a, a foot put up their backside by Mozilla. Vivaldi is going to be the default browser on Manjaro Cinnamon Edition. Vivaldi, of course, is just a Chromium Blink-based browser with some proprietary bits. It is proprietary software. It's only on Cinnamon for now. I asked the PR person who wrote to me about this, why just Cinnamon? And I was told that they're just testing the water, seeing how the community reacts before they push it into all of the editions of Manjaro. This shouldn't really be a big story, but I don't know, maybe it's just that end of summer feel where... There's nothing going on, and so people just want to be outraged about something. But people do seem to be quite outraged about this, no matter which side they're on. I've seen multiple sides, you know, people saying, well, it's proprietary software. And I I would be one of those people saying, why do we need a proprietary browser on the desktop when there are so many choices out there? And yet again, it's another Chrome-based browser. And it's so bad for the browser ecosystem that we have. Every time a browser comes out, somebody uses a bloody Chrome-based one. You know, it's their distro, they can do what they want. But I've seen people on the internet claiming like, oh, well, you know, you like Steam, so why are you complaining about browser choice? Well, browser choice is really important because everybody needs a browser. You don't need to use Steam. You don't need to use various other applications. But this is not the first time that Manjaro have done it. They had the other 
office application, which I can't remember which what it was called. And now they've got this browser and it just seems like they're creeping in the wrong direction with this stuff. What happens if it means they're getting essential funding for the project, though? You still know what you're doing with Manjaro. It's still easy to switch to a different browser. And a lot of it is how they do it, I feel. If it means that they can broker a deal where they get funding for extra development and stability, I think it's okay. I think it should be fair to criticise it, though, because I think you are kind of long-term doing a disservice to everybody by, yet again, using Chrome, because we end up in a massive ecosystem that's going to be a monoculture with Google in control of all the standards and being able to shovel out standard upon standards so no one can keep up. So the only realistic way to compete is to just use their engine, and then they're in control of the way the web works. I don't think so. I think if it puts Vivaldi in front of a few more faces and screens and people look at a browser more critically and they like what they find in Vivaldi, then other opens Firefox has got to respond to that. If they don't like it, then it's got to be easy for them to change it. And and especially if that means that a project like Manjaro gets some funding, because it's it's so easy to forget that this is a costly expense running the servers, doing everything else. And we all become idealists and wanting everything perfect, but they need money, I assume. I hope they've gotten a good amount from it then. <laughs> well, so do I, because how much is your reputation worth? You know, you look at other distros like Elementary OS that are unashamedly trying to raise funds and fund development and make money. But with open source software. Exactly. By sticking to very firm principles of open source software only, where possible, and privacy and all the rest of it. Whereas Manjaro are burning their reputation a little bit here, burning a bit of their reputation as they did before over the office thing. And it's such a difficult judgment to make here because I am always of the opinion that stick it in your repo when you then search for the thing show under license proprietary or whatever then I have no problem with that make it easy for people to install proprietary software and people who don't want to install it just won't but to pre-install proprietary software in a Linux distro just seems to cross a line to me I think we've said it before defaults count and whatever the default is for the vast majority of users, unless you go out your way to change it, they're just not gonna. And if they're looking for new users, maybe less technical users or people coming from other systems, then they're just going to use whatever the default browser is. Yeah, but this is Manjaro Linux. I, okay, that point is fair, yes. But for most of us, I really feel like it's like, okay, I'll load up Vivaldi, I'll see what it's trying to offer that's different to everything else. If it doesn't, I'm sure most people will just switch to something else. I'm sure of it. You're probably right. I just think it's a really bad precedent um, because if nobody kind of kicks up a fuss, well, what, what's next then is like, they'll be sticking all sorts of stuff in there, you know. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. I personally think it's a bad thing, especially when we have so many other projects out there that could be in its place. But do we, though? Do we have so many other projects out there? I don't think so. Even a Chrome using open source browser would be better. Okay, okay, yeah. But then it wouldn't be in the position to commercialize itself, perhaps to the same extent, and then pay for its positioning in a browser, which then funds distribution development and things like that or manjaro just ceases to exist yeah and i i know we probably owe a proper discussion and we've probably done it before where you know funding on open source projects is so difficult but is getting more proprietary software funding it the way to go do we not just end up back to windows 95 in the long run where huh. 
you know, you have this tiny fragment of an open source kernel that boots up into a whole lot of proprietary shite. Like, who wants this? I don't want that. If if it takes Manjaro to die for that to go away, then I hope they're gone by the morning. <laughs> but what, you think Manjaro's overwhelmed by offers to ship open source software and someone paying for it to be up there? No. Who knows? <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by CrowdSec. Go to crowdsec.net. CrowdSec is a free and open source and collaborative Linux security solution designed to protect your servers, containers, services, apps, VMs, and more. Imagine a Ferrari losing a Formula One race to a 40-year-old Pinto with a broken headlight and two flat tires. That pretty much describes the asymmetrical cybersecurity industry. Money never solved the hacking problem. A new approach is needed, and CrowdSec wants to rebalance the odds and make security available to all for free. CrowdSec analyzes visitors' behavior and deals with malicious traffic. It offers an adapted response to credential stuffing, port scans, password brute forcing, and much more. Once an aggressive IP is identified, it's also shared across all users to ensure everyone's protection. So, if you want to join the community and protect your IT assets, visit crowdsec.net. That's crowdsec.net. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you want to get in touch with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. But ultimately, show at latenightlinux.com is the best way. If you want to get your thoughts on the show via feedback or suggestions, that's mostly where we're going to see it. And check out Late Night Linux Extra 30. I can't believe that someone said they didn't know that Late Night Linux Extra was a thing. Every two weeks I plug it in this spot. They obviously just skipped the admin section. But check out Late Night Linux Extra 30. It's really starting to gel now with me, Dalton, Chris, and Gary. So do check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes. So another drama over the last couple of weeks was Proton Mail, which is a Swiss-based company offering encrypted email something of a darling of the open source world. And they used to say in their terms of service that they don't keep any IP logs by default. Well, it turns out that when the Swiss authorities are leaned on by the French authorities, they will then lean on Proton and force them to keep IP logs and browser fingerprinting for activists who the French authorities say have broken the law. Yeah, you're not in control of the server. They can say what, you know, for breaking the law, that's why they did it. But they can essentially tell you what breaking the law means, and it can be anything. And in this case, I think it was squatting. Yeah, I read conflicting reports about whether these activists were climate activists or anti-gentrification activists. I suppose there's uh, a Venn diagram there. (laughs) But either way, I don't think they were blowing anything up, were they? No, not exactly. Yeah, I have to agree with Phelan. And Proton Mail has had such positive exposure in Linux and hacker communities over the last few years. It's trying to do its best, but I think I've always held back because, yeah, it's somebody else's server. And ultimately, I'm just defaulting to not trusting anything, really, that goes through somebody else's server. And I think this just kind of proves the case. Well, to be fair to Proton, they are now suggesting that people use the Tor browser because that puts a technical barrier in the way. Because when it comes to legal barriers, the authorities can always lean on you. But the contents of these emails were encrypted. And so the authorities didn't get them. They only got the metadata about them. And so if these activists had been using the Tor browser, it would have been a lot harder. There would have been another layer or several layers. 
for the authorities to have to go through. It's difficult to blame Proton here for this because what are you going to do if the authorities in your country come around and fucking lean on you, then there's nothing you can do. But I think people should be made aware of that fact. Like, even if a service is there for security and they're doing a great job of keeping things secure and thing, if somebody decides that they want to get hold of your information, they will. I mean, your own server is not a protection against that. You know, they can go to all sorts of lengths to get it. But if it's outside of jurisdictions, etc., then, you know, it has to be a, a leaned on thing like this. And yeah, it's open to abuse. DMCA takedowns, they're open to abuse. You know, there's all sorts of ways they can do this. And I think people should be aware of that fact. I think a lot of people just brush over and go, I have nothing to hide. This might sound a bit trite, but I think if you've got secret information to share, email is not the way that you should be doing it. Email was always described as if you were writing a postcard to somebody. You can see where it's going and you can see the message. It's completely open. And I think that's a good paradigm to match it against. Don't use email if you require privacy or secrecy. Yeah, don't use the internet. Meet up in a car park and cover your mouths. Terrible, terrible news. And that is that the Ubuntu podcast is ending after 14 years. Yeah. It's an opportunity for us, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Strike where the iron's hot. No more swearing, guys. Come on, family stuff. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no more of my music. We're just going to have music from the turn of the century. <laughs> the turn of the last century. Still, they're always better prepared than us. That's true with their laminated show notes. But it was, I think, the second, no, it was the third Linux podcast that I'd listened to. And it feels really weird that it's going away, but you can kind of understand why. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. And I was thinking back when I heard from Popey that it was ending about all of the things they must have covered in the lifespan of Ubuntu during their um, tenure. All of the various Ubuntu devices and the phone story. It, it's been an exciting time. And uh, I like to, to think of the interesting news that they've covered and the way that they covered it and try not to be too sad that they won't be coming back well you wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for the Ubuntu podcast because you were a guest on there and that's where i heard of you and then subsequently asked you to join late night linux yeah thank you ubuntu podcast <laughs> on behalf of all the listeners yeah and it's i'm not just sad because i've lost an editing gig or anything but you know <laughs> that adds to this the pain of it and it's such a long time, and that takes real dedication, and it really does. There's not many people that really can appreciate it, but, I mean, Alan was doing it for 13 or 14 years. Yeah, he, he did it from the start, yeah. Ah, it's a remarkable. That It's a remarkable achievement, and it's, yeah, it's good to just focus on that, really, because the fact that it lasted so long is a good thing. Yeah, and there's people talking about wanting to carry it on and stuff, but I think just let it be, you know. Ah, it'll be missed. I hope that they'll be back as a team, as a group, perhaps with other topics or other shows. Um, I'll watch this space with, uh, with a lot of interest. Yeah, it'd be a shame not to hear from them again. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. 
Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late-night-linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late-night-linux. There was a piece that caught my eye this week by Matt Assay on infoworld.com called Open Source is Selfish. And it was about an argument that he'd been having with his mates about how the various big companies ought to have a big flagship open source project. But then he goes on to explain that these companies don't do open source for the love of it or to do something good. They do it because there's always a business incentive to do it. Are you saying Microsoft is not hearting Linux? (laughs) No, I've said from the beginning that they do heart Linux because they can make a lot of fucking money from it. And it's not because they care about the ideals of open source. None of the these big companies like Amazon and Google give a shit about that. I mean, okay, that's maybe not fair to say there's a lot of people who work for them who probably do. But ultimately, all that matters is the bottom line. And if making open source software and contributing to it can contribute to your bottom line, ultimately, even in a roundabout way, then businesses will do it. They have done it. They are doing it. And that is the reason. But it was ever thus. I don't think many corporations have ever just worked on open source software for the good of the nation. They've always done it. They always they have bills to pay. They've got staff to pay. They need to make money. So I think it's perfectly normal that companies should work on open source with a view to getting a return on their investment. That is the way of capitalism. I'm a bit conflicted about this um, because I think I use open source because of its features, because of the characteristics that it has. I use it because the time I invest learning something isn't easily going to go away or be migrated to or I don't have any control over it. And ultimately, even though I don't have the skills, I know that if I want to, I can go in and change something or own something. And that's the main reason why I love Linux and open source. And I think that's probably why it's been so successful for big companies and corporations as well. Now, there's another part of it. I like the altruistic side of it. It gives added meaning to it, which they don't have, but they don't have to have. Um, So I don't think it's a bad thing, but we should also perhaps do a better job of supporting the companies that do try and contribute more, um, which we do, but it's just so frustrating. There's just so few of them and so few of them that can make a business out of it. So that's the conflict that I don't know where this leads really. I know I don't resolve anything with that answer, but I don't think it's wrong that the companies are using open source in this way. I wish there was a better answer, and I wish perhaps the licensing hadn't been quite so permissive. Yeah, I think that's what I took away from this piece, is that, yes, that is the reality, but it doesn't matter. As long as they're all contributing to open source, then that's all that really matters. And if that is just a nice benefit, then so be it. The problem is that a lot of what they do isn't contributed to open source. I mean, I think about all of Google's proprietary web stacks and all the software running on however many billions of servers they've got, or even, you know, where Android is going or the Play Store and all that kind of stuff. Um, Amazon with OpenSearch, is that the right way to take that project? Possibly. 
There's a few ones that are quite difficult where you look at it and you go, I don't like the owner of the current software or I don't like the way they're taking that either. The new way that they're doing it, it's a hard one to decide between. But I mean, for me, I'm not going to use a service if it's not open. And the reason I'm not going to do that is not because of being all, oh yeah, let's come by, yeah, etc. It's more the fact that I don't want somebody to take it away from me. And you're in a very perilous position if you are dependent on a company to release the software. I mean, like, look, if you're in the Apple ecosystem, they can decide from one release to the next what type of architecture the CPU is, and you're just going to have to rebuy all your software eventually. You know, things like that. You don't want to be in that situation. So best of all, open source gives power to the user. And I suppose it's a little like freedom of speech. You know, we all kind of agree it's a good thing, but it leads to Twitter and all the rest of it. <laughs> and Gab. I'll take it all back. <laughs> Spotify have open-sourced an audio effects library for Python. So now you can script your compression and reverb and all that sort of thing rather than using the digital audio workstation. Graham, this sounds like it might be of interest to you. It does sound like it should be of interest to me, but <laughs> I must admit it didn't massively capture my imagination. Firstly, like the audio effects such that I've experienced them in Spotify aren't great. I don't like their compression and I don't like their fading in and fading out. However, it's good that they've done this, that they've open sourced something. And I quite like the idea of maybe if you're into podcast development or something like that, you could automate some of these things with a library. Automate my job away. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird one. It's a difficult... I don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> the first thing that I think of is the quality of the compressor and the amp simulator and the reverb and the distortion because that to me is the deciding factor even if it's through a library what i want is a compressor it's so difficult to dial in the right parameters for a compressor and so important that you get them right and it's the same for reverb the characteristics of the algorithm are so important to the output and i just don't have much faith in spotify being able to create the kind of output that i want to listen to or that i find appealing that's my main problem with it i don't really care how i access it I've listened to loads and loads of these different effects to try and find the ones that I like, and I'm very particular about the ones that I like. If it's not modelled after a 10 grand outboard bit of gear, then you're not interested. In a way. I mean, I, I know that I could go into boring territory and you'd fade me out with a long reverb decay. <laughs> but a bad one that you didn't like just to annoy you. <laughs> the compressor is so important, and it's remarkable what the difference, the characteristics of the way that it lowers the audio or the, the knee with the point where it actually starts to compress is that has a big impact on the quality of the sound and just having an effect that does it we've had that kind of stuff in last bar it's very easy to do it having something that does it in a characterful way that you feel improves the sound is much harder pardon my ignorance why does spotify have audio effects i thought spotify was just a audio application for listening to music because they're trying to break podcasting ah. simple as that they're trying to take over podcasting. Yeah, okay, I get you, because of, like, Joe Rogan. Yeah, and with Anchor, the platform that they bought, they're really just going after podcasting, and this, I think, is where they're coming from. Although, you can use VSTs with this as well. Well, I was going to say that. Is VST3 not that thing that you always go on about being really good because it's standard? So is this not just a really good library for controlling those, and therefore, who cares what they've produced? We could just use lots of cool VST plugins. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that's a really good point. And you could tie it into one of those crazy keyboards that you buy with those glowing large buttons on and stuff. Maybe you could uh, integrate the lot. 
It's VST3, which is open source, the Steinberg open source, the API and the libraries. There are very few from memory, like platforms on Linux that support it. Bitwig does as a commercial door, but it's definitely the one to support. So yeah, that is a really good thing. Yeah. I wonder, could they make use of this as some sort of feed it in, feed it back out again? Well, yeah, that's exactly what this is about. This is about scripting audio effects rather than doing it in a GUI. But you can do that with SuperCollider and you can do it with Pure Data. There are other scripting languages that let you do this. Um, I must admit, I've not tried it. So maybe I should try it and then form an opinion. I think it's pretty clear, Graham, that you just hate Spotify because of their <laughs> shitty codec. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have used Spotify for a long, long time. You know, I think it revolutionized music. I'm, I'm sure we all used, I used to use Mule and E-Donkey and all those things because, Absolutely you know, not. <laughs> <laughs> no, Spotify came along and kind of liberated music and forced the music industry, which is still so kind of backwards in its thinking to recalibrate itself and look at things differently. So no, I've got a lot of respect for the way Spotify went about doing that, mm. even though it's now destroying music. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, yeah, okay, they did solve one problem, but then they pay you like not point not 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 one pence per play or whatever. And you've got to have billions of plays to make any serious money at it. Yeah, but you see, I don't think anyone should make money out of music. I think we should just be traveling minstrels going from village to village. <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux. Okay, something I put in just to troll us all, I suppose, and that is that El Salvador has become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as an official currency alongside the US dollar. Bitcoin's arrived, finally. Has it gone up? It went up briefly and then crashed again. Oh, wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> you say crashed again, but I mean, it's worth over $40,000 or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, no, it went up significantly and then uh, was corrected, I think, is the the term or corrected itself i don't know <laughs> the correct value for bitcoin is zero <laughs> <laughs> well i keep waiting for that to happen and it never fucking does so maybe i should buy some more it's like war games the only way to win is to not play <laughs> 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 but this does give it more legitimacy doesn't it even if it is a small country it certainly gives it more legitimacy in that country i don't know if it does globally yet but think of all the things that people in El Salvador can now do, they can legally offer their services on the internet to the entire world and get paid in Bitcoin without having to deal with any sort of local banking systems, exchange rate mechanisms, all of those difficult and expensive things. I think it democratizes the labor market in El Salvador in a global economy. Blimey, that sounded wow a bit uh, <laughs> wanky, but you know what I mean? It, it, it's true. It, it gives options to people that live there. It gives them options to ply their trade on the, on the internet and um, not just 
Sorry. Making mucky videos. <laughs> Realistically, what is playing your trade on the internet? Go on. I think you'll find I ply my trade on the internet, and I'm fully clothed at all times, except when it's really hot. But thankfully, there's no camera involved, so no one sees. I think more realistically, a large part of the money that comes into El Salvador is from migrants living abroad, and they were wiring dollars back, whereas now they'll be able to send Bitcoin back without intermediaries, potentially or with fewer intermediaries and fewer costs involved. So I think that might actually be the driving force behind this. Western Union won't like that. Not one bit. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. The first one, killing the dreaded hamburger menu. Yeah, quite funny. So the new calendar app, I thought was ironic that, you know, K Hamburger just became a new library and they're desperately trying to get rid of the hamburger menu. But I think for a calendar type application, they've got this nice sidebar idea that they've got going on and it's quite cool. Looks really smart and quick and fast to use. So I can see how they didn't like things being hidden because yeah, if you've got hidden menus, they're not very discoverable and maybe not as intuitive. So yeah, I think that, that project's coming really along and he's they've started working on tag filtering and uh, some navigation toolbars and things like that. So I, I think there's some great work going on that. It looks really cool. And KDE was featured in a Tom Scott video. I didn't even realize. I watched the Tom Scott video and I didn't even notice it. But there's a couple of screenshots uh, that they use KDE on it. And this is the, they call NERC, the Natural Environment Research Council's Space Geodesy Facility. What they do is they fire lasers at satellites, and that's all I care about, and they use KDE to do it, so brilliant. Yeah, I saw that it was Linux, but it went by too quickly to identify it. I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, a few few console windows and everything. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, there you go, KDE in the wild. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about all sorts. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. 